Welcome to the Bailu Podcast. Please note the information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Welcome to the podcast. Now, regular listeners will know we often speak to some of Australia's leading fund managers to hear what they're thinking about various things, and today is one of those days. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Chris Weldon, Portfolio Manager at Magellan. Welcome back to the Value Podcast, Chris. Thanks, Nick. Great to be back. So as Magellan's tagline goes, Chris, experts in global investing. Um, So I suspect today we're going to get a a good insight into the state of the global economy and some of the world's biggest businesses within it. Um, I wanted to start off with perhaps something a little bit different uh, today. Let's look backwards, if you like. Chris, as you'd be aware, most of the listeners to this podcast are investors in one form or another, advisors, investors, people with an interest in markets. Um, If we go back to March, it was a, a pretty hairy time for all involved. You know, plenty of days when the market was down five or six percent, and on March 16, the market was down 10 percent. And I think we all had that sick feeling at the bottom of our stomachs when that was happening. So, from your perspective, when you guys see that those days of heavy losses, what do you do, and how do you try and make sense of things when the market is clearly panicking? Yeah, it was a pretty wild time, Nick. Um, I think, first of all, we try and separate, you know, recognizing most days there's not a lot of information value in the sort of day-to-day movements in share prices. So I think, you know, 80, 90%, who knows exactly what the right proportion is, but most of the time we're not sort of reflecting too much on what's causing day-by-day moves in markets. But there are those periods of time, and March was certainly one of them, where you do get um, some very meaningful moves that are being driven by very meaningful um, economic developments or other developments around the world. And, you know, as we as I reflect back to that time, it was sort of, you know, I think late February and early March, we were starting to really connect the dots around how um, potentially significant coronavirus and all the related health and economic issues could be. And, you know, we're starting to think through the different macro scenarios um, that we might all live through um, uh, in the in the months and years to come, and you know we've got to sort of put ourselves back in uh, shoes of uh, you know that sort of early March timeframe, and there was no meaningful sort of policy response by that point. Certainly on the, the economic side, yeah. and so there were very wide wide range of outcomes in, in our mind, and, and there still is to some extent, but but certainly at the time uh, we we became very cautious. Um, just recognising there were some very, very ugly downside scenarios that were in the viewfinder for us. And uh, for, for clients in Magellan products, you will all know that we prioritise at all times capital preservation in adverse markets. And we could see some pretty ugly economic and therefore potentially market uh, environments. Um, and therefore, we took that action to, to become much more defensive. And then during those days, um, when markets were really selling off and declining, you know, we we're sort of paying attention to obviously what was going on, what was driving that, but also getting a sense for the policy response, um, which was also kind of playing out in real time. You know, the, the big actions that the Fed announced and uh, the monetary policy support, also the developments in fiscal policy support at the time, um, they were quite meaningful uh, in the sense that they, in our minds, sort of reduce the probabilities of the potential worst case scenarios where you could have a cascading from a health crisis to an economic crisis, potentially to a financial market crisis. 
Um, and pleasingly, the Fed took the, the steps it did take back then uh, to put a, just make sure the plumbing continued to operate and put a floor in terms of how deep this crisis could have become. Well, we don't want to dwell on that on that too much. Things have improved, uh, hopefully on a sustainable uh, basis from those uh, from those dark days in early March. Um, so, so let's move on to perhaps a, a slightly more broader view from where we stand today, uh, and when we consider the pandemic and the economic consequences. You know, in your view, how, how do you think the world will recover? And as we sit here today, what are the potential economic scenarios? Yeah, Nick, I'd say probably more gradually than it seems others might be expecting. Um, you know, we can't exactly know what's priced in markets and those sort of things, but I'd say we've still got a pretty cautious view. Uh, just to sort of step back and characterise that macro framework and the scenarios that I referenced earlier, there were sort of four scenarios we had in mind, that a sort of V-shaped cycle, uh, something longer like a U-shaped cycle, and then a sort of multi-year prolonged and deep recession, and finally, depression. Um, so all four of those were in the viewfinder for us. Now, sitting here today, I'd say the probabilities of either end of the range, uh, the V-shaped or the depression, both of those cases seem quite unlikely to us. Um, the depression, as I mentioned, the depression case is probably off the table given the uh, policy intervention that we've seen. Um, but the V-shaped cycle is probably also off the table for most economies um, because the response was a little too slow and a little too insufficient to prevent the, the, the virus from really spreading mm. uh, and therefore required the, you know, the, the shutdown and isolation and um, social distancing policies that we've had to see, which is shut down economies, as we know, which are now gradually being reopened. Um, but there's been a period of time where we've just had to close the economy. Um, so as we sit here today, our sort of base case is towards those two more central scenarios, um, a, a U-shaped cycle or a prolonged and deep um, recession. You know, they're still, um, they are still very challenging um, environments ahead of us. Uh, but this is fluid. You know, we, we sort of think the probabilities have moved towards those two central cases, but there are, there's still so much water to go under, under the bridge here in terms of um, health outcomes, economic outcomes, policy outcomes. And as we, uh, we, we sort of see the news in either of those three channels develop, uh, whether we get you know vaccines, whether we get further uh, economic support, uh, or whether we get you know further challenges potentially in in providing additional policy, uh, the probabilities will keep moving around, um, and we'll keep you know adjusting and updating our thinking across those uh, those four scenarios. Okay, and just a point of clarification on your scenarios there, um, your U-shaped, the the shape of a recovery being a U. What's the sort of broad timeline that that you apply a a U-shaped recovery on? Roughly speaking, it'd be greater than twelve months, um, but but probably less than a few years. So somewhere in that that range, and then of course it extends out if it's that sort of prolonged and deep. You know, sort of very roughly speaking, it's sort of multi-year period, but maybe less than five. And then, again, sort of in rough terms, a depression could be something longer than that. Um, and we still, though we're, we're less concerned about that potential depression scenario for most advanced economies and, and for China, you know, that's a very important emerging market. But I would say that there are some emerging markets, which importantly we don't have, and our clients importantly don't have exposure to, but we do have some real concerns that some non-China emerging markets may still experience potential depression scenarios here. But again, that's subject to policy developments and health developments um, over the quarters and years ahead. Okay. 
Let's think about things in slightly more positive terms. If you think about the basics of economics um, and consumer behaviour, have you given a view? Do you have a view, given some thought to the to the pandemic, the crisis, and some of the things in consumer behaviour that are going to prove to be temporary, hopefully, uh, but those that might prove permanent in terms of the way in which consumers act to behave in the in the broader economy. You're giving a lot of thought to it, Nick, because you know, we want to make sure we're taking advantage of those opportunities to the extent behaviours are changing for the good, and that might benefit some of our country, uh, companies, but we also want to make sure we're not exposing clients to any negative shifts either. And it might be a little bit too strong to say there's sort of permanent changes at the moment. That's a, that's a very absolute statement, but directionally, yes, I think maybe we'd characterise it as acceleration of, of some certain trends, um, but also you know, quite abrupt changes in other forms of behaviour as well. So, you know, a few observations we can make um, just based on everything we've seen thus far during the crisis. Any sort of business that has a online or digital presence is certainly seeing a meaningful benefit to that part of their business. Um, while, you know, physical commerce has been shut down, um, that has been a pretty meaningful channel shift from people transacting uh, offline, uh, engaging with their customers offline, um, engaging with their own teams within businesses offline. A lot of that has transitioned online, as we all know, uh, in the last little while. So that has really benefited a number of uh, companies. Pleasingly, you know, we, we have a number of those companies within our portfolio. Of course, we didn't take those positions and make those investments with this um, coronavirus period in mind. It was recognising those long-term Trends were already established and in place, and we thought they would play out for years, if not decades in some cases. But we have seen quite a dramatic acceleration in some of those trends, and that's benefiting a number of, uh, of those companies at the moment. I think the Microsoft CEO had a good anecdote on his call uh, a couple of weeks ago where he said, you know, they've seen about two years' worth of digital transformation in just the last two months. So this, this massive bring forward in demand for a lot of the services uh, and solutions and software that Microsoft provides, for example. But then, you, you, just back to the prior question, you can't have a shock like this to economy without having some negative changes to, to consumer behaviour as well. Yeah. And where that's reflected itself in our portfolio and some of the changes in the portfolio, uh, we just recognise that the outlook for the makers and sellers of discretionary products uh, isn't as attractive as it was at the start of the year. And so, Businesses like LVMH, you know, big luxury house and great luxury brands and Estee Lauder, they, they're discretionary products. Uh, and in an environment like this, the demand for those products isn't as strong. And there's the risk of people deferring purchases or trading down within those categories. And that will impact the near-term revenues and cash flows of those businesses compared to the view that we had uh, earlier this year or, or even in the years before that when we made those initial investments. So we've moderated some of the exposure to those sort of businesses in the portfolio. Um, whether, you know, again, I don't think that's a permanent shift. Um, I think those brands will certainly survive and stand the test of time as they always have. Um, but the near sort of short to medium term prospects for those businesses are a little less attractive today. Okay, that's some good examples. Thank you. Um, I, I want to ask a little bit more about the shape of the portfolio to the extent that you're willing to share that with us. Um, probably at this point, uh, though, that uh, you remind us of the types of businesses, the characteristics in the companies that you like to invest in. What what are they, as a reminder? 
Yeah, so we, we sort of characterise them as very high quality and resilient. And, you know, that's a bit of a motherhood statement. What does it really mean under the hood? We're looking for businesses that have very, very wide uh, economic moats or sustainable competitive advantages, effectively businesses where the customers need them or, or really love them. Um, so that's a very important part. You know, we, we sort of do prefer businesses with a high degree of predictability and reliability and low business risk. Um, we also pay attention to the agency risk, you know, the, the board and the management behaviour, how they allocate capital, which is, you know, our clients' capital. Uh, as shareholders, we want to make sure they're doing the right thing there. And then we pay attention to the internal economics of the business. You know, can they reinvest internally at very high rates of incremental return and drive that compounding process that will benefit our clients over time? So very high quality businesses, ideally in an industry that's growing, you know, very large addressable markets, great industry structure, all those things we pay attention to as well. Um, and not directly related to your question, but also and always very important, um, is making sure we apply a big margin of safety to any of those high-quality businesses that we're looking at. Yeah, okay. So let's think about the portfolios. And obviously, Magellan has a, a range of portfolios, and we'll give you some details, uh, listen to some details towards the end of the podcast. But you know, in broad terms, um, let's have a, a brief a discussion around how the shape of the portfolio has changed over this crisis period. Yeah, profoundly okay. <laughs> is the, uh, the, the, short, the short answer. Um, if I... If I sort of look at the global fund portfolio um, uh, at the end of 2019 and then compare it to the end of the first quarter 2020, um, we can start talking through it in, in those terms. Cash, as we came into the year, was at 6%. It's now at 17%. So a very meaningful increase in cash, taking it not all the way to our 20% limit, but you know, obviously it's getting closer to that limit. And that speaks to the defensive shift that occurred uh, very early March in the portfolio. Um, as we sort of recognised what was going on with coronavirus around the world, we also uh, modestly increased our exposure to the most resilient and defensive businesses uh, that were already in the portfolio. So businesses like utilities and infrastructure, uh, healthcare companies, consumer defensive companies that have a very high reliability to their cash flow profile, almost irrespective of the economic environment. So we were adding to those sort of positions. Uh, we um, were trimming uh, some of our more cyclical businesses, um, businesses you know where we still have a very high regard for their long-term uh, profile and opportunity, but just recognising businesses such as Alphabet and Facebook, Visa, Mastercard, Estee Lauder, and LVMH. We just touched on um, they are more cyclical, and we're going to, in our minds, go through a pretty uh, potentially tough cycle here. So. We wanted to moderate the exposure to those sort of businesses. Um, and if I sort of was to group, um, you know, Alphabet, Facebook, uh, Visa, MasterCard, those those companies reduced from about a quarter of the portfolio at the start of the year to about 18% as at the end of the first quarter. So quite a meaningful reduction uh, in that part of the portfolio. Likewise, the, the two luxury companies that I spoke about, they fell from about an 8% uh, position combined to 6%, so some trimming that occurred there. And then we still had roughly 10% uh, of the portfolio across the three restaurant companies that we've owned for quite some time, McDonald's, Starbucks, and Young Brands. Uh, and then there was roughly 20% of the portfolio in uh, enterprise software companies and Chinese digital platforms. And we, so unlike 
the US digital platforms, um, Alphabet and Facebook, which I just mentioned, we were trimming. Yep. Um, we did we did not sell any uh, or, or, or trim any of Microsoft or SAP. You know the two large enterprise software companies we have, and that speaks to the resiliency um, and the acceleration in demand for some of their services and software in this environment, but also the Chinese uh, digital investments that we had, Alibaba and Tencent, uh, we actually expected them to benefit um, from this environment. And pleasingly, that's been the case uh, based on everything we know so far. Tencent has reported, they reported some wonderful numbers for the first quarter. Uh, Alibaba incidentally reports its first quarter results tonight. So we'll see what they say. But we expect all of those trends to be very supportive of their business results in the short term here, given uh, those two companies really allowed um, the work from home, uh, the schooling from home uh, environment that we've had in China uh, through, you know, very late 2019 and early 2020 when that country was in the grips of the crisis. Um, much of the country relied on the, the services and the infrastructure that Alibaba and Tencent provide. So there's a lot of stuff there. I want to follow up on a couple of points there. So firstly, you describe Facebook and Alphabet um, the parent company to Google, Google to being uh, more cyclical exposure, and I guess that mainly comes down to the global advertising cycle um, that you're talking about. And you know, as we know, for companies, advertising is generally a discretionary item, um, and yet the share prices of of those have actually rebounded um, pretty pretty strongly. Um, you know, how do you reconcile sort of longer term con- or medium term concerns around the ad market, and yet um, the overall market has um, uh, or the share prices have bounced back pretty strongly from from early March. Yeah, I mean it's it's that's the, you, you, you're exactly right. The share prices have responded and rallied very strongly over the last uh, month or two. Um, it, it's been our view that advertising uh, the the advertising bucket, the advertising pie, would suffer um, during this cycle, uh, as it always has. As you mentioned, it's typically a, a pro cyclical industry. Um, it is a very discretionary expense that businesses can uh, cut, cut back on um, when they think you know revenue is going to uh, decline. It's also a lever that they will pull when they start to expect a recovery as well. So that's that's important to keep in mind. But we did expect that even if the total advertising industry was challenged, that Alphabet and Facebook would continue taking share. Yeah. Um, it, it just the contraction in the overall industry would cause a short to sort of medium-term headwind to their growth. Growth would still likely through this cycle be positive. Um, it just wouldn't be at the same rate of growth that it would have, uh, would have otherwise been. Um, and, of course, you've seen actually some pretty pleasing results from the company during the first quarter. Uh, but you've got to keep in mind that coronavirus really started shutting down the United States and, and big parts of Europe towards the very last part of the first quarter. It was really March. Um, and so... The January and February numbers for so many of our companies, they're actually incredibly strong, you know, almost across the board. Um, The commonality in the commentary from many of the companies we follow is that January and February were some of the strongest months that they've seen for many, many, many years. It speaks to the health of the underlying economy in those businesses. But then everything sort of fell off a cliff in March as economies around the world started shutting down. And so you can't take the first quarter results um, as indicative of what's coming. You know, the second quarter is going to obviously look much worse than the first quarter. 
and a lot of companies have withdrawn guidance. Um, so we don't really have a clear picture yet on just how bad it's going to be. We're starting to get some economic data and things like that, but the companies themselves haven't given too much disclosure yet in terms of just how bad that cycle is going to be in the second quarter. But you've seen, you know, one of the other things that supported the, the Facebook share price, at, at least in the last week, has been that announcement around shops uh, and then sort of getting into the, the e-commerce side, um, using their, their, their apps to um, provide uh, e-commerce solutions to, to merchants and for their users. So I think they sort of got 6 or 7% share price gain on the, the day of that announcement. That's kind of, you know, it's not too tied into the advertising cycle. Um, so that was more of an idiosyncratic move, but I'd still say we just, you know, we've got some caution around the, the, the economic cycle and therefore the advertising industry and therefore the sort of short-term prospects around Facebook and Alphabet. But as I mentioned earlier, the long-term prospects still for these companies are very, very strong. And it's also worth keeping in mind, as we've done for all of our holdings, we've really stress-tested the balance sheet for, for all the investments. But keep in mind, businesses like Facebook and Alphabet, I think Alphabet's sitting on about 110 or $120 billion or something like that of net cash. And Facebook would be in the order of sort of $50 billion worth of net cash. So incredibly strong balance sheets. Of course, they're going to survive this, this shock. Um, but with that sort of balance sheet strength, it may also allow them to do some pretty opportunistic things to emerge even stronger on the other side. One of your lar- uh, largest positions, if not the largest position um, across your portfolios is Microsoft. Um, you mentioned it uh, just before on previous podcasts, um, you and your colleagues have talked in some detail about Microsoft and in particular, you know, their exposure to the you know, long-term transformation to on-premise, from on-premise computing to cloud-based computing. So um, you know, how is Microsoft been performing and in particular that, that cloud-based growth angle? What does the, the crisis and the shutdown do um, for that side of life? It's actually, so different parts of Microsoft um, have performed differently during this period, but, but on balance, it's certainly been positive. Um, so just, just some high-level numbers, again, for their first quarter. And keep in mind that the comments I just made, that, that the first quarter doesn't give you a strong indication for what's going to come in the second quarter. But I, I think it just speaks to the quality and the strength and, and the growth opportunity that, that Microsoft possesses at the moment. Um, and this is notwithstanding the fact that I think it's a trillion four or trillion five market cap company, so it's incredibly large already. Um, revenues for the business, co- constant currency in the first quarter, year on year was sort of up mid-teens. I think it was 14, 15, 16%, something like that. And their operating profits for a business that large and notwithstanding the environment, were up nearly 30% year on year. And what's driving that is really the different parts of their cloud business. Um, part of it is Azure, their, their infrastructure, their cloud infrastructure business. And that's still growing above 60% year on year. Um, growth rates, which is staggering given that these businesses are actually now becoming quite large in their own right. Um, But their on-premise server business also continues to deliver double-digit growth. And then the other core part of their business is, of course, their productivity business, you know, their office applications. And that's also being driven by a shift to the cloud and a product called Office 365. Uh, And that business also delivered very, very strong double-digit revenue growth uh, and operating profit growth in the first quarter. So there will be almost certainly a deceleration in trends uh, in the second quarter. 
um, the coronavirus um, and the shutdown will probably cause some sort of uh, near-term disruption and delaying to some of those cloud projects just as businesses are fighting other fires at the moment. Um, but as I mentioned, the, the comments from Sachin Nadella, the Microsoft CEO, they are absolutely well-placed to capitalise on this digitisation trend uh, that already existed. And they're seeing a lot of inbound um, requests for their, their products and their services and their software. Um, some of that just may be a little delayed in the sort of second quarter, third quarter, potentially a little longer, just while businesses are, are facing other challenges at the moment. But they're absolutely in the sweet spot um, to continue supporting those digitization trends uh, that are accelerating for them at the moment. I want to move on to a, a couple of things in terms of Asia and, and Western Europe, but um, but just quickly, we're talking about these large cap um, tech stocks, the, the FANG stocks, as they're um, colloquially referred to. Um, previously on this podcast, talking with one of your colleagues around um, Amazon and the proposition of Amazon and its business and what its core business is and conceptually how to value that business. And certainly at that time, um, there was an appreciation of the, the size, scale and quality of the business, but but less appreciation of what the right way to value it is. You know, it is probably the best performing stock through this period, given its focus on, on e-commerce. Has that caused you to sort of reassess your thoughts on Amazon at all over the last few months? It hasn't, Nick, to be honest. Um, if anything, it's strengthened our view uh, on the quality of that business and the positioning of that business. And that's very consistent with the things that I mentioned for Microsoft. Yep. To the extent that Microsoft's uh, cloud business is benefiting, so is Amazon Web Services, a big part of Amazon today. And of course, I, I sort of hinted a little earlier in the conversation that any business that has a meaningful online presence is benefiting and taking share from uh, their offline competitors. And of course, Amazon's e-commerce business has flourished during this period. And while we're seeing bankruptcies from, you know, traditional classic offline um, department stores and retailers in the United States. So that whole shift from offline to online commerce has accelerated and that's benefiting um, Amazon's business. So we, look, like Microsoft, we recognize those trends were in place um, and that was the attraction to that business uh, like Amazon. But it's still the, the case that we just can't get our arms around the valuation of it. And it's I wouldn't say it's we're, we're suggesting it's overvalued or undervalued. It's more just a question mark around sort of a lack of um, transparency and visibility into the core drivers of that intrinsic value over time. Um, and therefore, you know, if we, we sort of can't really get comfortable with it and put our hands on our heart and say, within a reasonable range, we think it's worth this. Um, you know, we, we, it's a beautiful thing about investing. We don't have to invest in it. Um, it could get to a point where we do feel like we've got a good, strong uh, estimate of value. Uh, hopefully, it would be at a, uh, the price would be at a discount to that value when we get there. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, we'll stick with similar, very high quality businesses, and, and Amazon is a super high quality business. Um, but we'll stick with our other high quality businesses in our universe, and just try and find those where we have a little higher conviction in uh, an estimate of fair value, and where we can buy those businesses at a discount to that estimate of fair value. You're listening to the Value Podcast. 
Okay, we're talking to Chris Weldon, Portfolio Manager at Magellan. Um, Chris, let's move our attention to China. Um, in your eyes, how's the recovery playing out in China and you know, how is, in particular, the consumer in China from your perspective at the moment? Yeah, China, I mean, let, let's be honest, China was able to take some steps or at least decided to take some steps uh, earlier in this crisis um, that other uh, societies, other economies um, weren't able or willing to take. And that allowed them to sort of get their arms around the crisis sooner and perhaps prevent the spread of the virus through other parts of their their country. Um, and they just seem to be experiencing a shallower um, and, and uh, less lengthy um, health issue and economic issue based on what we know today, you know, and, and we will have to pay attention to second waves. Uh, and there are some reports around um, active case numbers increasing near the border with North Korea and things like that. There, you know, Bloomberg was running reports during the week that they're seeing some evidence of the, the virus mutating in parts of China. You know, so we, we have to be vigilant to the, those incoming data points. Um, but China, generally speaking, in our minds, based on what we know today, hopefully may experience something closer to the V-shaped cycle here compared to the um, the U-shaped and prolonged and deep-shaped cycle that I mentioned we think most of the other advanced economies will experience here. And that's because of the, the pretty sudden uh, and meaningful health and economic steps that the Chinese Communist Party took very early in this crisis. And therefore, we think the Chinese economy and the Chinese consumer, in a relative sense, uh, is likely to do better uh, than most other advanced and certainly most other emerging economies here. Um, and so, in an absolute sense, you know, things aren't as rosy and as attractive as they were three months ago or six months ago. But in a relative sense, they are still just as attractive. And even then, in an absolute sense, back to your question around the, the Chinese consumer, that that you know, there has been. Um, a, a pleasing uh, trend and trajectory of that consumer through February, March, April. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of our companies talk about China sort of bouncing back sooner and seeing some some positive signposts and data points. Um, Nike talked about, you know, very strong business in, in China during the first quarter. Uh, we don't invest in Nike, but we're following it. Estee Lauder, uh, L'Oreal, um, Starbucks, to some extent, they, they still have some, or did still have some store closed during the first quarter. So those business, you know, they're seeing positive trends. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's not as good as it was. It seems to be better than the rest of the world. Um, but then the digital platforms that I mentioned earlier, the, the Tencent and the Alibaba's, they've seen very meaningful parts of their business uh, benefit from what's going on there uh, at the moment. And the consumer engagement across Tencent's um, suite of online gaming, online media, online entertainment, digital payments, um, their mini, mini programs, um, which allows their, uh, their users to interact with more and more businesses through the, the WeChat uh, portal. And then Alibaba, you know, benefiting from e-commerce, just like we were talking about Amazon benefiting from e-commerce. Alibaba's experienced the same benefit in China. Their cloud computing business has also benefited, very similar to the discussion we had around Microsoft and Amazon's cloud business benefiting. So those trends, again, we, we sort of expected them 
to play out over over the long term, this coronavirus period has brought forward a lot of that demand. And look, the, those companies have been quite transparent in suggesting that as people go back to work and back to you know some of their old routines and habits and and workflows and and daily routines, some of that engagement across their services will likely decrease. I mean, Facebook's been saying the same thing. Mm. Just because we've been stuck at home over the last couple of weeks and months, uh, we've been uh, spending more time in front of screens and online. As we go back to our old habits, whatever those habits might be, um, they'll lose some of that engagement, and 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 that's fine. But over time, we still still think those trends are very much in place. And both of those companies are very, very well positioned to take advantage of them. Yeah. So Alibaba, um, as we've talked about on this podcast before, I think, you know, the leading e-commerce um, platform in China across many, many different aspects, but about 60% market share of, of overall e-commerce in China. Is that right? Is that still valid? It, yeah, it's still roughly, it, it might even be a touch higher than that, but, but 60 to 70% market share is sort of directionally consistent with the last data points that I've seen. Yeah, wow. And that's one of the biggest positions in your um, portfolios. Let's just touch on Tencent. So uh, what is it exactly? What does that business do? Um, and I guess, um, you know, what's what's the implications of, of a company like Tencent owning a, a stake in, in an Australian business after pay? Maybe what an easier way for an Australian audience to think through Tencent. At the core of it, um, is a, a messaging and a social network platform called WeChat that's not too dissimilar from Facebook. Um, it, it is the leading uh, messaging and social network within China. It has 1.2 billion people, um, active users, using WeChat, and which is in a country of 1.4 billion people, 1.2 billion uh, is a breathtaking amount of market share yeah. and speaks to the network effects and, and all those things that exist within messaging and social networks. And so that portal, that WeChat uh, app, has become uh, a very important uh, part of Chinese citizens' just digital lives. They access all sorts of services through it. But because it has that degree of usage and engagement and people engaging with it multiple times per day, it's effectively the portal through which uh, those Tencent and WeChat users then access a range of other services uh, that Tencent offers. And that could be their digital payments um, business, which is uh, almost equally tied with Alibaba in terms of uh, market share and dominance in digital payments in China. It could be their online gaming business. Uh, Tencent has the largest online gaming business by revenue on the planet. Um, and that business has obviously benefited from people staying at home uh, over the last few months. Yep. Um, they have a very large digital uh, and online media business. So think of a, a sort of Netflix and Spotify business existing within Tencent uh, in China. And then they're, uh, one of the big growth platforms for them outside the WeChat ecosystem going forward will be, although it's related to it, uh, will be their um, their enterprise-facing businesses. So building out a cloud business and building out a uh, that, that WeChat mini programs business that I mentioned earlier where uh, effectively they are pivoting or, or expanding the WeChat app to almost create an operating system. So it becomes a super app whereby um, you can access a whole heap of other business services within the WeChat app. So it's 
uh, effectively becomes the operating system for, um, you know, if you want a, a ride-hailing service uh, within, uh, within China, you wouldn't go and download a ride-hailing app and add that to your, your phone. You'd actually use your WeChat app, which is already on your phone, and, and then you'd access the ride-hailing service within uh, the WeChat app. So it's not just an app anymore, it becomes the operating system yep. through which all these other sort of mini apps are then sold. Um, so it's just becoming a very, very dominant and sticky part of Chinese citizens' digital lives. Um, so it's got a very big consumer-facing business and expanding enterprise servicing business. Um, and in some ways, it competes with Alibaba. You know, we spoke about the, the digital payments and the cloud computing pieces, but, but in many ways, it has very dominant positions um, where it has, you know, closer to monopoly-like positions um, in, in other parts of its business. And what interest do they have? Why, do, why are they interested in little old Australia and our afterpay business, I wonder? What I would say is it's very consistent with Tencent's approach over time, and that is to take um, often quite meaningful minority positions in businesses that operate in their, uh, in their adjacencies. So they have you know, quite, large meaning, uh, quite large investments in other e-commerce businesses in China, in other uh, online gaming businesses, other digital payments businesses in China, but also outside of China. And Afterpay would be an example of that. They've got a pretty meaningful position in, in Spotify, uh, for example. So they, it's very true to uh, Tencent's um, uh, growth over time is for them to take um, quite large stakes, uh, but minority stakes uh, in those sort of businesses. And then uh, to finish off on, um, how's performance been across the suite of funds for Magellan over this period and, and uh, you know, reflecting on the long term as well? Just to broadly recap for, for clients and for, for the audience, yeah. um, over time we're targeting 9% after fee returns um, and capital preservation, so downside protection. And so absolute returns is what's front of mind for us, not, not, not relative returns. And look, pleasingly on a one year through three, five, seven, ten years, we've managed to achieve that um, that nine percent or better after fee returns for the global fund. Obviously, in this environment, uh, the the three month number and the one month number is below that nine percent. But in this drawdown period, um, let's say the three months through to the end of um, through, through the end of April. Uh, a period in which markets in Aussie dollar terms, the Miski world was down 10% roughly. Uh, the, the the global fund was down 5.5%. So again, just evidence of us protecting clients' capital, limiting that drawdown. Um, and that's that's what we aim to do over time um, is, and true to our history and true to the data that, that we've got, is traditionally, historically, uh, in meaningful market drawdowns, the downside capture for the global fund has been about half of that drawdown. But again, over those same periods of time, whenever markets are rising, we keep up with markets to about 100% of the market gain. And so that over a full cycle, if you're keeping up with markets when they're rising, but only falling roughly half as much, and that's historic, so who knows what will happen in the future, but historically, if we're only falling about half of what markets are during down markets, um, clients have ended up in a much, much better position relative to markets overall. But what we're trying to achieve, again, is absolute returns, not not relative returns. Very good. Um, the easiest way to get more information on Magellan and their range of funds 
and look at all of that performance data as well as some of their commentary and their key holdings is speak to your financial advisor or you can go to the Magellan website at magellangroup.com.au. Hey, uh, Chris Weldon, thank you very much for being our guest on today's podcast, Portfolio Manager at Magellan, Chris Weldon. Very very welcome, Nick. Always a pleasure and, uh, and keep well. Also, I should remind everyone that this, the ELNC Bailu podcast, is now available on all, on all the major podcast platforms, particularly those on your smartphone. So please go to your podcast app and search for Bailu. Subscribe or follow us to make sure you're kept up to date with our thoughts and including interviews with key fund managers such as Magellan. Um, if you found what we've been talking about today as informative and interesting, please tell your family and friends to look us up as well. Please help spread the word on this podcast. Um, on that subject, on SoundCloud, we've got our back catalogue of, of podcasts. We've got a number of previous podcasts with various members of the Magellan team over the last couple of years. Uh, we talk in depth, for instance, on the US FANG stocks. We talk about the Chinese consumer in more detail. There's lots of stuff there, so please look that up on the Bailey page on SoundCloud. And lastly, if you're interested to talk more about your financial situation and the sorts of services ELNC Bailey can help you with, please go to our webpage, bailey.com.au. That's B-A-I-L-L-I-E-U.com.au. On that page, you can have a look around at our podcasts, our videos, some of our research, the sorts of services we provide. Under the Contact Us tab, you can go to a Start the Conversation section. Fill out your details if you'd like to speak to an ELNC Bailey advisor if you do not have one already. That's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to our guest, Chris Weldon at Magellan. And until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to The Value Podcast. The information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. You should not rely on general advice without making your own inquiries or your own assessments about the suitability of the financial products or services mentioned. 